0: Hey, thanks for clicking in. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast previewing the scripture readings for the upcoming Sunday Masses to be celebrated in Catholic churches on Sunday, October 31st, 2021. That's the 31st Sunday, in ordinary time of year B in the lectionary cycle. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website, it's USCCB.org. In the top navigation bar, select Daily Readings, scroll down to the date for the Mass, and click on in. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not here to preach at you. I'm here just to share some background and context information gathered from the work of actual Scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators but it is all sifted through my own tiny brain. Today we'll begin by looking at the second reading for the Mass, then we'll move to the first reading the Responsorial Psalm and finally the Gospel, since those three are thematically linked. That means we start with a portion of the seventh chapter of the Letter to the Hebrews. The unknown author continues his exploration of the meaning and importance Of understanding Jesus as the new High Priest for all people. This is our third week in this letter on this topic and it continues in the following two weeks. That alone should tell you how significant this title High Priest for Jesus was for the letter's initial audience and for those of us today who seek to grow in faith and understanding it remains instructive and relevant. In two previous episodes, I've spent some time on the background of the letter itself and on the role of high priest at the great Jerusalem temple in the time of Jesus. I'm posting those segments of the episodes separately. They're labeled the letter and the high priest for anybody who's interested who might not have listened already. I'll read today's passage first, then try to unpack the specifics a little bit. Here is a reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, the Levitical priests were many because they were prevented by death from remaining in office. But Jesus, because he remains forever, has a priesthood that does not pass away. Therefore, he is always able to save those who approach God through him, since he lives forever to make intercession for them. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, higher than the heavens. He has no need, as did the high priests, to offer sacrifice day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did that once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men subject to weakness to be high priests, but the word of the oath which was taken after the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The word of the Lord. Here, the author first compares the high priesthood of Jesus to the hereditary line of Levite high priests in the temple in terms of permanence. Every Levite high priest was temporary. He would die. Hereditary succession to the office was both a convenient and predictable means of keeping the office of high priest filled. But most of all, it was necessary. No one in the long line of priests escaped mortality. The death and resurrection of Jesus gave him the status of eternal high priest since death no longer had any claim to his resurrected body. So, while the Levitical priesthood required many men, with all the variation and inconsistency that comes with that, Jesus is not just constantly, but is consistently carrying out the new office of high priest. How is the office new? Each year, Levitical high priests had to offer new sacrifices for their own sin, and for the sins of the people. Jesus, sinless, had no need for any sin offering because of his own behavior, and being the perfect and sinless offering himself, he accomplished the reunification of all humanity with God in the single event where he was both priest, the one offering, and sacrifice, that which is offered. Perhaps the most obscure language in the passage is this line, The law appoints men subject to weakness to be high priests, but the word of the oath, which was taken after the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The law here refers, I believe, to the unfolding of the Ten Commandments into the 613 statutes enjoined on the Jewish people by Moses, The word of the oath is a reference, at least for Christians, to Psalm 110, which speaks of the sonship of the one who is made both priest and king. Because of the permanence of his priesthood and the eternal nature of his life, Jesus' authority to intercede for sinners is uninterrupted through all time. The phrase, once, and for all, is the core of the theological point the author is making about the efficacy and permanence of Jesus' sacrifice and high priesthood. Now, on to the first reading of the Mass, from the beginning of chapter 6 in the book of Deuteronomy. Within these five verses is what is, perhaps, the most significant prayer in all of Judaism, known as the Shema, It is the foundational statement of the monotheistic theology of Judaism. When we hear the gospel passage for this Mass, you will hear Jesus recite this prayer as the beginning of his answer to a question. Here is a reading from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses spoke to the people, saying, Fear the Lord your God, and keep throughout the days of your lives all his statutes and commandments which I enjoin on you, and thus have long life. Hear then, Israel, and be careful to observe them, that you may grow and prosper the more, in keeping with the promise of the Lord, the God of our fathers, to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Take to heart these words which I enjoin on you today. The Word of the Lord. Okay, let's put some context within the biblical map and biblical timeline for what we just heard We are on the plain to which Moses has led the Jewish people outside the Moabite city of Beth Peor. This is the site of a past grievous apostasy, a failure by the Jewish people to remain true to their covenant with God. It is also within the boundaries of the new land promised to one of the twelve tribes of Israel, the tribe of Reuben, So the place is a reminder of past offenses of this nation, and also a demonstration of God's graciousness in again forgiving their infidelity. The time is just prior to the Jewish nation crossing the Jordan and re-entering the promised land, following their 40-year trek after escaping Egyptian enslavement. Moses has been up Mount Sinai, he has received the Ten Commandments of the Lord, and is beginning the process of promulgating what will become known as the Mosaic Law to govern the new nation's behavior. The passage here contains a very brief prayer and then a call for the people to commit to follow the divine commands given to them. The essence of the prayer, the belief, can be represented by these four words, Lord, ours, Lord, one. Or as you just heard it, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Then comes the call to be totally committed and obedient to this one God. We'll get there in a few seconds, but the prayer, though brief, is packed with meaning. The first statement of belief here is, The Lord is our God. The full meaning is that this God is not like other gods worshipped by other tribes or nations. Those false gods are attached to a place, a shrine, a temple, or some feature of nature. This God is first and foremost attached to the Jewish people. Scripture scholar Sister Diane Bergant has written, All of Israel's history with God is contained in the phrase, Our God. Then, the prayer or belief statement concludes with this phrase, The Lord alone. It's deceptively simple. It can sound like simple redundancy. But it means much more than the people proclaiming, Yes, Lord, it's just you. No other gods will we worship or serve. Rather, a more complete reading is that all the attributes of a just, generative, and loving God are found in this one God. There is no need for other divine qualities, actions, or powers to be provided from any other source. The one God of Israel is all the Godhood that is needed, all that there is. Then comes the call to obey this commandment of loving God with all one's heart, soul, and strength. The divine promise of a good life in fertile lands has been made in the preceding chapter. I will give the seasonal rain to your land, the early rain and the late rain, that you may have your grain, wine, and oil to gather in, and I will bring forth grass in your fields for your animals, thus you may eat and be satisfied." Referring to the sweeping change from their long Egyptian enslavement to this cusp of a new life of freedom, Scripture scholar and Franciscan priest, Father Leslie J. Hope, summarizes it this way. The people who have been living by the promise now need to learn how to live with the fulfillment. To keep the promised good life in effect for future years and future generations demands a total commitment of each individual and all of them together, a commitment to remain faithful in all things, all works, all desires. The responsorial psalm for this Mass consists of elements of the 18th psalm. It's a combination of the psalmist's attempts to describe God to someone else, as well as directly addressing God in praise of the deliverance He has brought to His people. The metaphorical symbols used here to characterize God are interesting. Each represents some aspect of deliverance and newfound safety. Rock fortress, stronghold, shield. Writing in a time and place where violence is common and wars are both plentiful and brutal, the psalmist is offering the very comforting image of a God who intervenes to maintain the safety of his people. Raham is the word translated as love in these verses. The word is a little unusual. It comes from the word for womb and so carries a heavy connotation of the visceral, elemental love that a mother has for the child she carries or to whom she has just given birth. It is a love for someone who comes from within oneself, someone who is an extension of one's very being. With the cry, The Lord Lives, we get a sense of acknowledging a God who is active in the world, intervening on behalf of those he favors. I'll repeat the refrain only at the beginning and the end. Here is the psalm of the day. I love you, Lord, my strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. O Lord, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock of refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. Praised be the Lord, I exclaim, and I am safe from my enemies. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, extolled be God my Saviour. You who gave great victories to your King and showed kindness to your Anointed. I love you, Lord, my strength. In the Gospel at this Mass, we have a rather unusual scene. In Jerusalem, Jesus has been teaching a crowd of people with several parables. Pharisees and Herodians then attempted to entrap Jesus, without success. Herodians were Hellenistic Jews aligned with the house of King Herod, the Roman puppet king, and they joined the Pharisees in opposing Jesus. Next, a group of Sadducees, Jews who denied the possibility of any resurrection, tried their trap for Jesus. They, too, failed. So far, it's a pretty standard scene, right? Here comes the unusual bit. One of the scribes. These were something like lawyers, legal experts who would write contracts for others, among other things. One scribe asks Jesus a simple, uncomplicated, but extremely important question. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus answers him by reciting the Shema and extending the command to love God to a command to love neighbor as well. The word used could be legitimately translated as countryman. When Jesus does this, the scribe compliments his answer and amplifies the impact by restating its essence. Now that's different. The scribe calls Jesus teacher, a great bit of public recognition from someone who is clearly well-schooled and very bright. That's really different. Jesus extends the commandment to love God to include neighbor or countryman. It is the scribe who blends them into a single commandment, recognizing the essential nature of the second if the first is to be obeyed. It is the scribe who places the current temple practices, and the profitable ones at that, far below the value of the commandment to love. The final two sentences of this story are rather enigmatic, but I'll read the gospel passage before commenting on those two final sentences. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark one of the scribes came to Jesus and asked him, Which is the first of all the commandments? Jesus replied, The first is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You are right in saying he is one and there is no other than he. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, is worth more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered with understanding, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord You are not far from the kingdom? Not far? What else is there to understand? First of all, this is a statement of approval from Jesus. He is complimenting the scribe for his ability to correctly process what Jesus has taught. Maybe I'm demonstrating too much of my own damaged psyche by wanting Jesus to give him total endorsement. I want Jesus to say something like, good answer, you got it, high five for that. I probably want that for the scribe because I really want it for myself. On further thought, however, I can see what might be one aspect of Jesus' withholding total praise. It's not about understanding the commandment. It is about doing the commandment. It is about living it out in everything one does. Finally. We get this. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. The question that pops into my head immediately is, why did those who set out to discredit Jesus simply conclude that he was too good at this back and forth stuff and give up, chicken out? Might it have been something deeper and of more consequence that put the brakes on their attacks. Jesus, and one of their own, the scribe, have just offered the answer that answers all other questions. Could it be that all the interest groups aiming at Jesus have been concentrating on the little things in the law at the cost of truly taking to heart the central saving principle of their religious tradition. Might it be that some of them are beginning to reassess their way of life? What do you think? I'd love to hear your take. Email goes to get ready for Sunday at c c c c Tucson. That's t u c s o n dot. I'm done for this week. Guard your health of both body and spirit. And may God bless you.